how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Revelation Part 3, The Big Trouble. When the Lord writes history, he writes it quite differently from anybody else. And I've done this in a little diagram to try and explain. When uh, human beings write history, they cover all that is past right up till now, and they cover what happens down here on earth. And that circle represents human history, but it's only partial, it's only part of the story. History is his story, and when the Lord writes history, he gives us the whole picture, not just what is past up till now, but what is future and will happen then. Not just what happens down here on earth, but what happens up there in heaven. And so we have this total picture of history, not just the past but the future and not just earth plus heaven. Now that's why the book of Revelation goes into the future and goes up to heaven to look into the future. So we're constantly up in heaven, down on earth, up in heaven, down on earth. And what happens up there affects down here. For example, when Satan is finally thrown out of heaven in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, he comes down to earth frustrated and angry, full of fury, to vent his worst down here. And that's when Antichrist and false prophet appear. So normal historians don't realize that what happens up in heaven is all part of the picture, and what happens in the future gives light to the past, and we get the whole total history from the book of Revelation. We call this apocalyptic history. The word apocalypsis in Greek means unveiling, to draw a veil away, to draw a curtain away. And the two curtains that are drawn away in the book of Revelation are the curtain that hides heaven from us and the curtain that hides the future from us. And until those two curtains are removed, we cannot possibly get the total picture. So God unveils the future and he unveils what's happening in heaven so that we get the total understanding uh, of his history, his story. Now moving on from there, just to give a very brief overview of chapters 4 and 5, chapter 4 I would entitle The Creator and His Creatures and it's a magnificent scene, it beggars description this beautiful rainbow, white throne, glassy sea, and some rather weird creatures, four of them, representing all God's creatures, are praising God and worshipping him. From chapters 4 and 5, we get a tremendous number of choruses and songs and hymns which we use in worship because they're just full of worship. The book of Revelation is not only full of art, it is full of music as well full of singing, full of songs, songs of praise. So in chapter 4, John is invited to come up to heaven. Though his body is still in prison on Patmos, his spirit is up in heaven, seeing heaven itself and seeing the beauty, the colour, and above all, the security of it, the peace of it. God is sitting on his throne. Little girl went home from Sunday school with a new chorus she'd learned, God is still on the phone, she sang all the way home. 
Well, it's a nice thought and it's true, but the truth of Revelation 4 is God is still on the throne. God has not surrendered any of his sovereignty to anyone. He is still in total control of Satan himself and of everything that goes on. Nothing can happen without God's permission. He is on the throne. History is not out of control. You might think so reading your newspaper, read Revelation 4, and you know that God is still there. He is sovereign. Everything is happening according to his plan or according to his permission. Could be either. Well, now that's the picture in chapter 4. There are 24 elders and that figure is significant throughout the book of Revelation. Whenever you see 24 elders or 24 this or 24 that, we're looking at the representation of 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles of Jesus. They make up the 24 key figures, 12 sons of Jacob or Israel and the 12 apostles make up this whole dispensation of God's amazing plan for our redemption. So we'll find in the New Jerusalem there are the names of 12 apostles and 12 tribes on the New Jerusalem, signifying that the future of the Jewish people and the Christian people are one. We shall be one flock under one shepherd. But here we have the old people of God and the new people of God represented always by 24 in heaven. In chapter 5, John bursts into tears and he weeps because God tells him that he, God, will not bring history to an end. He wants a man to do that for him. He wants the end of human history to come about in human hands and he can't find a man who is worthy to start the countdown of history. And John weeps because no human being is considered worthy by God to bring history to an end on God's behalf. And then he sees this combination of a lion and a... no, not a lamb, a ram, a ram. I wish I could go through everybody's Bible and cross out the word lamb and put the word ram because the word lamb to us means a little white cuddly thing. And I've seen so many uh, pictures of the Lamb of God and in churches and I cringe when I see this little white cuddly thing a few weeks old. Listen, the Passover lamb was a ram one year old and here we have a lamb, a ram with seven horns in its maturity. It's a strong picture. It's not a weak little picture like a little lamb. It's a strong picture. You wouldn't like to be shut up in a room with a seven-horned ram one year old. You would not think of cuddling it. You'd be measuring your distance to the door. And the lion and the ram are very strong pictures. Nevertheless, the ram has obviously been slaughtered and yet is alive. The, the ram looks as if it has been slain. It's Jesus, of course. He is again represented by the lion of Judah and the ram that takes away the sins of the world. And this man and this man alone is considered worthy to start the countdown of history. I'm not worried that any man's going to press the wrong button and cause a nuclear holocaust that will wipe out the human race because there's another finger already on the button and it's Jesus' finger and it belongs to a pierced hand. God will not allow any man to end the human race 
except Jesus. He alone is worthy to receive all power and honour and glory. And now heaven is singing to Jesus because Jesus is at last going to bring to an end the whole sordid history of our human race. And it has been a sad and sordid story and Jesus is going to bring it to an end. It's not going to go on like this forever in this planet and many people think it will just go on and on and on like this. It won't. It's got to stop. One of the reasons why God uh, gave us a sentence of death for rebelling against him was that he would not allow any of us to spoil his universe forever. So he put a limit of years on our life precisely to stop us polluting the environment morally and materially forever. And so God has limited us but he has also set a limit to the history of the whole human race. It will come to an end and yet the end will be a beginning. Now those are chapters 4 and 5 but now we come to chapters 6 to 16, the heart of the book of Revelation and the worst part. Uh, it's bad news. I love the honesty of Jesus. He was always honest with us. You know, I've heard testimonies say, I came to Jesus and all my troubles were over. Have you ever heard a testimony like that? I used to believe them. I don't know. My testimony is just the opposite. I came to Jesus in 1947 and my troubles began. Got baptised in the Spirit a few years later and my troubles got worse and I've been in more trouble in the last 10 years than in the previous 30 <laughs> and some of you know that. But cheer up, says Jesus. He promised us trouble so my life has fulfilled his promise and he told us that there's going to be big trouble, great tribulation. Paul did the same. He told his converts, through great tribulation you will enter the kingdom. We should be honest when we're leading people to Christ. You're heading for trouble. You will now become a social misfit. You will become a stranger, a pilgrim, a sojourner passing through. You will no longer belong to the world into which you were born. You are now part of a new human race. You're no longer homo sapiens, you're homo novus. That's Latin for new man because in Christ there is a new creation. You're a new human race and you don't fit in this evil world anymore. Present evil age will not like you. It's the quickest way to be unpopular to follow Jesus. In fact, he said he cursed anybody when all men speak well of you which is quite a thought. Trouble. In the immediate future we're in for trouble and big trouble. And here's a bit of good news for you. Nothing worse will happen to you than is described in chapter 6 to 16 of Revelation. <laughs> Jesus has told us the worst. You laughed at that but it's good news, you know. What is better, to have the doctor tell you the worst or to have the doctor not tell you anything? Which would you rather? We want to know the worst, then we can adjust to it, we can get ready for it. Well, Jesus was honest enough to say to these seven churches and through them to us, things are going to get bad, very bad towards the end of this age. And so in chapter 6 to 16 we have a series of troubles which together constitute what we call the big trouble or the great tribulation. And they come in three series of sevens. 
there are seven seals, then seven trumpets, then seven bowls. Without at the moment asking how they relate to each other, let's just run through them so we know what they are. And we notice straight away that the seven seals, each seven divides into four, two and one. The four belong together, the two belong together and the one stands on its own. We notice also that the seventh in each case is a worldwide earthquake, is exactly the same, but the six are different. Now let's just take the first four seals for example, there are four horses. Common sense tells you these are not real horses, these are pictures, symbols. And the symbolism is in their colour, white, red, black and green. But we are also told what those colours mean. White is a symbol of military aggression. Napoleon rode a white horse, most military conquerors have ridden white horses. Military aggression. The red horse is the symbol of blood. Military aggression inevitably leads to bloodshed. What does bloodshed lead to? The black horse that, we're told, is the colour of famine. In fact, human flesh tends to go that colour when in malnutrition. Black is the colour of famine. What follows famine? The green horse, the pale green, is the colour of disease, pestilence, plague. Now here we've got four horses, military aggression, bloodshed, famine, disease. They're already riding through the earth in local areas. I could name at least a dozen areas where those four horses can be seen. Military aggression has shed blood, has led to famine and disease. Well now, those four horses will ride through the earth before the end of history, though they're riding locally now. Seal 5 talks about Christians, believers, being persecuted and praying to God, how long, Lord, will this go on? How long will you allow your people to suffer and die? I don't suppose most of you know that last year over 350,000 people died for Jesus. There are more martyrs in our day than there have ever been before. People dying because they're Christians. That's going to be quite fierce towards the end. For unbelievers, the sixth seal reveals tremors in different parts of the world and terror on the part of unbelievers, an atmosphere of fear. And finally, the seventh seal, silence in heaven, but a great earthquake down here. Now that's just the seals. It seems as if these disasters intensify as we go into the trumpets and later into the bowls. They become shorter in time but fiercer in nature and they change from human disasters or disasters that have a human cause to natural disasters when the environment itself becomes anti-human. And so we have the first four trumpets reveal a scorched earth a dry earth short of rain, a polluted sea which is no longer able to support life, contaminated water on land, contaminated sources of drinking water and reduced sunlight, presumably due to some change in the atmosphere. Those are natural disasters where these were caused by human 
factors. Here are some natural disasters. We have an insect plague as the fifth trumpet, and then a strange one, an invasion from the Orient, from the East, of a gigantic army, hundreds of thousands of soldiers coming from the direction of China into the Middle East. And then finally, Trumpet 7 announces the arrival of the Kingdom of God, when the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our Christ and of his God, and accompanied by an earthquake again. Then we move into the bowls, and now these seem to become even more intense with an outbreak of boils or cancers on the skin of human beings, the sea turning into blood. Well, it did that off the uh, South American west coast not long ago. Did you see the pictures? The whole Gulf Stream or whatever it's called down the west coast of Latin America went blood red, but uh, just for a short time, but it was for hundreds of miles. Well, that's going to happen to all the oceans. Blood from the springs, the springs on land turning into that kind of colour. And fourth bowl, burning by the sun. Too little sun here, too much there. The fifth, darkness, natural light going. And the sixth, the battle of Armageddon. We'll come back to that in a moment. And the seventh, a universal catastrophe of great earthquake again. Now, if you try and work out the order of all these, you'll get into a muddle because it's quite complicated. I'm going to give you what I believe is the order in a moment, but in fact, to me, since Jesus was a good teacher, if he wanted us to concentrate on the order, he would have given it in a more simple, straightforward manner. But I believe he was not wanting us to concentrate on working out timetables and calendars and schedules. He wants us to be ready for all this. He's telling us all this so that we know the worst and we can there be, therefore not be surprised when they happen. We will not be caught out. The world will be completely caught out and say, what on earth is the world coming to? That'll give us a wonderful opportunity to say it's not what the world's coming to, it's who the world's coming to and we can tell them, but we can say we've been expecting this. Jesus told us it would happen and he's honest and he prepared us for it. Nevertheless, it's a pretty grim list of disasters coming on the world and we have to ask how will Christians survive all this? How will they fare in it? But before we look at that question, I want to share with you what I believe is the order in which these things will happen uh, because that will give you the feel of the structure or shape of the big trouble and these, cha these chapters in the middle. Bear in mind that we're only talking about three and a half years or 42 months or 1,260 days. Now there have been three suggestions as to how these seals, trumpets and bowls fit together. In the book, they just come one after the other, but is that the way they will happen? Well, one view is that it will be successive. The seven seals will be followed by the seven trumpets, will be followed by the seven bowls of wrath outpoured. 
But that's a little too simple. It doesn't really fit. And it doesn't fit because the seven in each case is the same. By the way, did you notice on the previous chart that the last three in each case are woes, which in fact is a word for curses. But the final woe in each case is this gigantic earthquake. So number seven seems to be the same in each case. So a second possibility, which some Bible commentaries have, is that in fact they are simultaneous that the seven seals happen at the same time as the seven trumpets, happen at the same time as the seven bowls. They start together and they finish together. So they're all happening at once. Again, that doesn't seem to fit. And you have to force the scripture somehow to fit either pattern. So I want to come to a third possibility, which I believe is the one that fits every hint that we have in these middle chapters, that it is both successive and simultaneous, that they start one after the other, but they do finish together. In other words, seals one to six are followed by trumpets one to six, followed by bowls one to six, and all finish at seven. Now that seems to fit as if we've got a crescendo, a speeding up of these last disasters. And uh, we're in history anyway, and we know it's speeding up. The acceleration of world events is all around us. So we have a successive, speeded, simultaneous relationship. Now that looks pretty complicated. Don't worry, because that's not, not why Jesus gave it to us, or he'd have done it much more simply. But if you want to work out how these relate to each other. I think that is the way rather than this or this. But interestingly enough, between after six each time, you get a parenthesis, a kind of interlude, which describes what happens to believers in all this. Interesting that most of this, of course, is coming on the whole world and all will suffer from this. But there are interludes which describe what's going to happen to God's people. The first interlude is chapter 7, which comes after the sixth seal. The second interlude is chapters 10 and 11, which come after the sixth trumpet. And the third interval is chapters 12 and 13, which don't come after the sixth bowl because there isn't room for them there, so they come in front here. And that's roughly the outline of 6 to 16. Six seals, interval chapter 7. Six trumpets, interval chapters 10 to 11. Then the third interval, chapters 12 and 13, and six bowls leading right into this seventh climax, which includes so much, the big earthquake, but it includes Armageddon, it includes the kingdom coming. Everything happens here. Again, don't let the complex order worry you because uh, that's not the point of it. The point is Jesus is giving us a feel of all these things that are going to happen so that we're ready for the big trouble if it happens in our lifetime. I'm also going to say this, that these big troubles are all casting their shadows 
ahead of them and have been for 2,000 years. As John says in his letter, the Antichrist must come, but there are already many Antichrists in the world. I'm sure you've heard the discussion as to whether Gaddafi was Antichrist or Saddam Hussein. Well, they discussed whether Napoleon was or Hitler. Well, the answer is there have been many Antichrists, but there's a big one coming. Similarly, there will be one big false prophet at the end, but there are already many false prophets in the world. Already the four horses, those different coloured horses, are galloping through parts of Africa and parts of Asia. So that in a sense, what happens at the end becomes a way of reading your newspaper today and seeing the shadow, the foreshadowing of these later events coming. So we are already in a sense living in the last days, but the last, last days that were being talked about here uh, throw their shadow before them and we can already see things shaping up for that. For example, it talks about a cashless society in which when you reach the checkout at the supermarket, you'll have to put your hand or your forehead over the checkout because you'll have a number lasered on your hand or forehead. That seemed like science fiction 20 years ago. Swindon is now the first town in the world to have cashless shopping and shopping with a number. It's happened in our country. That doesn't mean that Revelation 13 is already here, but it is a foreshadowing of it. So that though we're looking ahead to these climactic disasters, we're already seeing on a smaller scale, on a local scale, we already see it happening. The people of China love the book of Revelation because they see in it a description of what's happening to Christians there. And in other parts of the world where there's persecution, they read this book because they can see it all happening in their local situation. We happen to be in one of the more comfortable countries of the world where we don't see too many shadows of all this. But if you read on a worldwide scale, you can see them. Well now, just a word about those interludes, about what's going to happen to believers. In chapter 7, the first interlude which comes here, you have a picture of two groups of God's people. One is Jewish, one is Christian. The Jewish are on earth and during the big trouble we're told that God will protect and preserve the whole Jewish nation because Jews have always been a scapegoat for trouble as Christians have been and uh, they will be protected and preserved through that big trouble. Next you see a multitude from every kindred and tribe and tongue but up in heaven looked after by God. And that has led some to assume that Christians will be in heaven before the big tribulation comes. I'm going to deal with that in the next talk. I don't believe it. When you read that second half of chapter 7 carefully, it clearly is made up of Christians from all over the world. They are washed in the blood of the Lamb. But what you find is they are coming out of the great tribulation and the verb coming out there means, and you must take my word for it, not coming out in a bunch, but coming out one by one, slowly, over the whole period. These are coming out, one by one, out of the big trouble. And when you ask how they're getting out of it, the answer is very simple, martyrdom. 
and you find this emphasis on martyrs all the way through the book of Revelation. And uh, they have been in the big trouble, they have been under the scorching sun, they have been uh, through these disasters, but it says, but now the sun is not smiting them anymore. And a lovely touch, it says, God is wiping away all tears from their eyes. Why should they be in tears if they've been caught out before the big trouble? They're in tears because they've been through it and they're coming out of it by martyrdom and it's a number that no man can number. So here's the first little interlude. It talks about Jews on earth and a huge number of Christians in heaven who are coming out one by one as martyrs. Not all Christians will be martyred. Some will be able to escape and survive in country areas, not in town areas, but uh, many will be martyred. And we shall see in a moment Babylon drunk with the blood of the saints, the worldly city. Well, that's the first interlude. The second interlude is, um, it comes at the end of the sixth trumpet. And here we have an interlude about witnessing. And at this point, John in his vision is told to eat a scroll, a wrapped up, a rolled up piece of parchment. And he eats it and he says it was sweet and sour. You've heard that phrase somewhere before. But uh, he is now, you see, going to be shown the worst troubles of all and he's told to digest all this in vision and as he digests it, he has this strange mixture of sweet and sour. It is sweet when he first tastes it and then it turns sour. Your sweet buds are at the front of your tongue and your sour buds are at the back of your tongue. And sweet and sour pork pleases your whole tongue. You get the sweet at the front and the sour at the back and uh, John says, that's what I feel like when I'm chewing through this bit. And in fact, that's my reaction when I read the whole of Reve Revelation. It's sweet at first taste that Jesus is going to win. And then you begin to think of all that's got to happen before he wins and it turns sour the back of your throat. It's a vivid picture of John's reaction to what he was having to digest himself in all this. And uh, I think it's a very similar reaction I have to Revelation. It's sweet and sour. It's sweet, it's good news, and yet it's sour. It's bad news. Bad news before the good news. And then in chapter 11, right at the end of history, we're told there will be two witnesses in Jerusalem and they will be killed for what they're saying and their bodies will be left in the street, God's last two witnesses. And then after three days, they will stand up and come to life and people will see them ascend to heaven as if what happened to Jesus will happen to them. Who are they? I don't know. I'll tell you when they come, if I'm still around. Speculation about their identity is misplaced. Then we have the final interlude when things get really tough for believers on earth because the government of the world will be in the hands of this unholy trinity. Instead of Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we have Satan, Antichrist and false prophet. And they are the unholy trinity that will finally govern our world. And then it will get very tough indeed for believers. That's when we will not be able to shop or buy food unless we are prepared to have that dreadful number 666 
on our bodies to hold over the checkout at the supermarket. It's going to be very tough. The false prophet will even do miracles, satanic miracles, to bolster the regime of this dictator, this antichrist. Anti doesn't mean against, it means instead of Christ. When the devil tried to tempt Jesus, he said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll bow down to me, and he was offering Jesus the post of Antichrist, which one day a human being will accept. Isn't it amazing if Jesus had given in to that temptation, we'd be talking today about the Lord Jesus Antichrist, but we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ because he refused the offer, but one day a man will accept it. So here we have this totalitarian regime. The world will not finish in a democracy, it will finish up in a dictatorship, and these three will be the dictators, two of them human and one superhuman, Satan. And Christians will have a very tough time. So that's the final interlude in chapters 13 and 14. 14 finishes with three angels, and this vision compensates for the horrors. It's a foretaste of the future. It shows a huge number of saints safely in heaven and a call to fear and worship God. It says Babylon is fallen. Well, we'll talk about that in the next talk. And it finishes with a, a warning to believers, to saints, that they could finish up in hell, that it may mean martyrdom to stay faithful to Jesus. But it says this, write down, said the angel John, write down, from now on, blessed are those who die in the Lord, for their deeds do follow them. That's often read at funerals, but it's really a verse about the last days when people are dying not of natural cause, but dying for Jesus. Blessed are those who are martyrs in the last day. Now I think we just have time to look at four ways in which these middle chapters have been interpreted and quite wrongly in some cases. But when you pick up a book on the book of Revelation, you'll find it usually follows one of these four schools of interpretation. And the real nub of the question is, these disasters, when will they happen? When are these predictions fulfilled? And there are four different answers from the scholars, and I want to run through them because it complicates books about Revelation, and you will come across these, and you might as well know about them. They're given horrible labels, and uh, the four schools of interpretation of this big trouble are the preterist, the historicist, the futurist, and the idealist. And they're all answering the single question, when will these troubles happen? And the preterist says they have already happened. They are all concerned with the fall of the Roman Empire under which the seven churches of Asia lived. And therefore to us today, they are all over and done with. They are historical to us, they're in the past. They belong to the first century AD and into the second and maybe third. Babylon, in the book of Revelation, sits on seven hills. And so they say, well, that must be Rome because Rome was on seven hills. That's the preterist and it interprets the whole book in the light of the Roman Empire 
and therefore treats it all as past in the first centuries AD. The historicist believes this middle section covers the whole period of church history between the first and second coming of Christ and unfolds a complete church history and they love to take chapter 6 to 16 and something like the Cambridge Modern History in six volumes and lay them alongside each other and read, read off the history of the world over 2,000 years. But actually that is very difficult one. You really have to force it to fit. Against the first one, most of the disasters listed in 6 to 16 never happened in the decline of the Roman Empire. So I can't believe that one. In this case, you have to so to force it, they tell us that we're somewhere in the middle of chapter 16 in 1997, that you know we're unfolding it all and you can read about the Reformation and the early persecution and so on. Uh, one variation of this is even to use the seven churches of Asia as seven periods in church history. And did you know that we're now in the Laodicean age? Have you ever heard that one? Well, the seven churches of Asia do not represent seven periods of history. They represent seven types of church in all ages. That's what they represent. But here I'm not convinced that there are seven ages of the church between the first and second coming of Christ and that therefore we can find out exactly what chapter of Revelation we're living in. The third way of tackling these chapters is the futurist which says all these bad disasters are still future to us. So we have this view that says they're all past and done with, this view that says we're in the middle of them and this view says they're all yet to come and that we're talking about the last seven years of this age, three and a half of which will be the big trouble. I'll tell you quite frankly, that's the one I basically believe because when I read chapter 6 to 16, I just can't fit them in to what has happened already. I can't believe we're in the middle of it and I can't believe they're all over, but I can believe they're all future, maybe near future, but certainly future. The fourth view says they don't apply to any time, they apply to every time. They are simply myths or stories that you can apply to any age at all. They don't have any location in history or in time, but they, they show us what's happening all the time in the eternal struggle between good and evil. You mustn't time any of them. This is the eternal struggle between good in heaven and evil on earth and so it goes on. Well, there's an element of truth in that because as I've told you already, the future disasters do cast their shadows before them and you can see the beginnings of them now in our age. So my approach is a mixture of the last two, primarily the futurist, that we're looking to the big troubles ahead of our time but that we can already see in our century these things beginning to happen. We see little dictatorships, we see little antichrists, we see little false prophets, we see the beginning of big troubles, maybe more than the beginning. Well, now I just thought I'd mention those different schools of interpretation at this point because that is how different people interpret all these disasters. They either say they're all past 
in the Roman Empire and its fall, or we're in the middle of them now, we're halfway through them, or they're all future, or they happen at any time. Well, primarily futurist, they are ahead of us, thank God perhaps, but uh, they will come. But already we can see these foreshadowings of these things happening now. We can see polluted oceans. We can see the sun becoming too strong or too weak. We can see the ozone layer uh, separating out. We can see so many things. We see the four horses riding through the earth. We see a greater shortage of clean water than food. We see all this happening and it no longer seems science fiction, it seems only too real. The scenario is becoming entirely credible. So the idealist which applies it to any century has some truth in it, but I believe the major truth is futurist. And with that we'll close this talk. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.